Hi, this is Amanda. And this is Lindsay. We're True Creeps. Where the stories are true. And the creeps are real. We'll cover stories from grotesque gore. To the possibly plausible paranormal. To horrifying history. To tense and terrible true crime. And everything else that goes bump in the night. We want you to join us while we creep. We cover mature topics. Listener discretion is advised. Hey everybody, so today we're going to be talking about the victims that have been found in the Belangelo Forest in Australia. So we had a list of woodland true crime from when we were doing like spooky woods where we found a whole bunch. And then the first person we stumbled upon had murders in the Belangelo Forest. And then we got stuck there and we never moved on. So this particular state forest is southwest of Sydney in Australia. There were 10 victims, but three killers. These are some of the most gruesome murders I've ever heard. And they all happen to be in this forest. Two of the killers are related, which blew my mind. Yeah. And if you've ever heard of the horror movie Wolf Creek, that movie was actually inspired by this serial killer. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't either. And also, when you're entering the forest, there's a sign out front that says, you know, welcome to the Belangelo State Forest. And then underneath it says, please be careful. Right? I'm like, mm. And I've read about... You're like, oh, be careful, don't get murdered. Bad vibes. Yeah. And what their intention was like, no, be careful, lock your car doors, don't leave valuables out, make sure you put your fires out completely. Not what it looks like now. Yeah, like it feels more ominous now because when you know what happened, but I read an article that says people keep stealing the please be careful sign and they have to keep putting it up, but it was only in one little article. I couldn't find it anywhere else. That's a hilarious small crime. (laughs) So the first set of murders that we're going to talk about took place between 1989 and 1993, and they were all committed by Ivan Milat. And he had seven victims. And we're going to talk about the murders. But I think for Ivan Milat, because he's one of Australia's worst serial killers, we're going to talk a little bit about his background first and the other things that he did. And we'll get into the murders in like his context. And then we'll keep going with the other cases. Okay, so to start out, he was born on December 27th, 1945. He was the fifth of 14 children. And his family had a tomato farm. Seven out of 10 of the Malat sons had been arrested. Clive Small, who's a former police superintendent, says that the family is just overall very unusual. Clive Small will come up a lot during the subject because he did a really good interview and was involved in the case the entire time. Boris, who's Ivan's brother, said that now having the Malat name is just bad to carry. Fair. So their family grew up with knives and guns as everyday life. So they were very used to using them. It wasn't out of the ordinary. As early teens, Ivan and some of his brothers were crooks. They would break into homes. They would steal stuff. They they didn't have a very good start, if you will. His family didn't really talk to other people much. So a lot of the information about his upbringing is a bit hard to come by. Sometimes it's unreliable, so we just want to put that out there, that a lot of it is from Boris, actually, so, you know, you want to believe him, but there's some things that may not entirely be true. As an example, Boris said that Milat exhibited psychopathic behavior early on, but a lot of family members say otherwise. Boris also said he was going to kill someone from the age of 10. It was built into him. I knew he was on a one-way trip. I knew that it was just a matter of how long. That's terrifying. Like, could you imagine knowing your siblings just wrong in some way? Right? Yeah. Like being able to go, something's not quite right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And but they're also your sibling. Yeah. Yeah. I really feel bad for Boris. Right. 
he seems like he's the only one brave enough to speak about this and be, I would think, honest. From the way he talks, he's very passionate. Yeah, I mean, I also kind of see it as he's the only one who's willing to step out of line because everything that I saw with in addition to this being like a family that was like known by the law, they also really stuck to their farm and they hung out with each other mostly. So they were kind of insular. So like they were their world. So kind of stepping outside of that was not something that the other siblings, I think, considered. Right. No, that's true. Boris also talked about that Ivan's love came from killing people. He said he got a lot of joy out of killing and maybe it was the thrill and anxiety or maybe the fact that he could just get away with it. Ew. Yeah. And all of that is sickening. So overall, the police were just very well aware of this family. Yeah. And it sounds like from the start, right? Like when they were teenagers, even. Yeah. And when we say Malat, we mean Ivan Malat because, and we will reference other members of the family by their first names just to make it easier. But I don't think that Malat was the oldest brother. So he wasn't the first one to show an interest in guns or knives. So it wasn't like it was altogether surprising. And if the others were engaging in criminal activity, it's not surprising that he would also start doing that. But so in the 1960s, Malat was starting to serve longer and longer sentences because of B&Es and burglaries. During this time, and this is an interesting wrinkle, he had affairs with two of his brother's girlfriends slash wives. And this is perhaps one of the reasons why Boris is like, fuck you, is because he had an affair with Boris's wife, Marilyn. So Boris said they had an 11-year relationship and that Marilyn had a daughter during the time that she was having an affair with Ivan Malat. So there's questions on like whose daughter she is. Boris was actually going to shoot his brother, but his mother kept walking in front of the gun. So the interview that Amanda was discussing earlier, they also interviewed Boris. And that's when he was talking about the relationship that his brother had with his wife. So in his interview, Boris said he described pointing a gun through a window at Malat, but he got nervous that he might accidentally shoot someone else. So he stopped and interviewers tried to reach out to Marilyn's daughter and she declined the interview, which I could understand because if I had to choose between the two, I would not want Ivan Malat to be my father. Exactly. Yeah. And from everything I see, it seems like Ivan was like actually relatively charming and so that's one of the reasons why I think, well, one, he had these affairs, but also why he was trusted. And we'll get we'll get into that in a second. But so as Malat got older, he escalated from petty crimes to violent crimes. In 1974, Malat was acquitted for the rape of Margaret Patterson, and she was hitchhiking with a friend from Melbourne at the time. So in 1977, Malat attempted to rape and murder two other women, but he wasn't charged. Disgusting. Exactly. Fuck this guy. So this leads us to 1982. And in that interview, it also included a man named Colin Poweth. And he tells the story of what happened to him when he went to Australia. So he was visiting and he was hitchhiking because he was trying to get to an area to look for work. And then after a while, a pickup truck stopped and picked him up. He talks about how he went to put his backpack in like the back area. And the driver said, no, 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 put it in the cab. It's safer here. He's like, okay, sure. He follows directions. He gets in the truck. He noticed that there was nothing in the back of the truck, though, except for a hammer. So once inside, the driver told him to lock the doors so he wouldn't fall out. He was like, it's just kind of weird. Like, I'm not a child. I'm not going to, like, roll out of the car, but sure. Yeah, I'm not trusting this vehicle. (laughs) Right, like, weird. So once inside, too, the driver started to ask him some odd questions. He asked things like, how long have you been in Australia? And who knows you're here? Don't like that. You know, typical get to know you questions. 
Can I just say, though, too, as a woman, the second someone says that, I'm out. Yeah. And I think that that's like a difference between like people who have been socialized as women. They're like, you want to know if I'm alone? I got to go. That's very weird. Yeah. Like the first one, how long have you been here? Like, I can tell you're not from Australia. Sure. Mm-hmm. But does anyone know you're here? What? That's so weird. Just like a bad way of asking the question. Like, oh, do you have family in the area? Yeah. Do you have a girlfriend? Like, there's ways of asking it, my guy. We should not be giving like murder tips. But like, yeah, are you visiting someone? It feels like he wasn't even trying to hide it. No, no, not at all. So he gives him the answers, though. He's like, I've only been here two days and I don't know anyone here yet. And then that's when he describes that Ivan went into what he called a trance and he looked like he was just in deep in thought like, oh, good. No one will miss you. He almost turns in my head. I think of like robotic. Oh, I don't have to socialize with you anymore. You're it. You're the one. Like he takes his mask off. Exactly. Yeah. So he says the driver was silent. And then all of a sudden he, he just makes this left turn and he's like, I'm turning off here. And he's like, uh, but wait, I'm going to Cobar. So you could just drop me off right here then, like, because he wanted to keep going, right? And he says nothing. He just keeps driving. So his response to that was, it's not safe to stop. But he kept looking in his mirror. And I think, like, to see, is anyone following me? Is anyone coming? By now, he's, like, kind of freaked out. So he finally stops about a half a kilometer down the road, which I think is about a third of a mile. And Colin opens the door. And then the driver comes up with his hand behind his back. And he's holding the hammer. He says what saved him is some cars drove past and the driver turns to look, you know, like cars are coming. He he didn't expect cars. And because he looks so suspicious, the cars were also just like staring at him. What are you doing? Yeah. So Colin took that moment to just get out, grab his backpack and go. And so while the cars continually were passing, he was just like trying to make as much distance between him and that truck as possible. He got about 20 feet away before the driver then called out to him and said, hey, something like, look after yourself, mate. Have a safe trip. And at the time, Colin's like, "Ugh, this was like a bad attempted robbery. Thank goodness I'm safe. Nothing happened. I'm fine. Went along on his way, right? And he also didn't report it to police because he's like, he didn't lay a hand on me. Like nothing technically happened. What would I report? Yeah. Years later, he's sitting there watching a documentary on the backpack murderers. And then when Ivan's face comes up, he's like, oh, my gosh, that's the guy that picked me up that day. Yeah. So we're going to talk about something later on. But there's like two different facts from what Amanda said that I want you to just tuck in your head. One, that he wouldn't let him put his backpack in the back of the truck, that he insisted he put it in the cab, even though that meant that he could get away faster. And two, the fact that he kept looking in the mirror, because I actually think there's another reason why both of those things happen. So moving on, though, for now, in 1984, Milan actually got married and he was married to a woman who was 15 years younger than him. At this point, he was 31 and she was just 16 years old. Her name was Karen. And when they had met, that he had just gotten out of prison for armed robbery and they had met through Karen's brother. The catch. Yeah. And so they were out with friends and she challenged him in front of a mutual friend. So he put his gun to her head and he said that he would kill her if she ever did anything like that again. No words. Like, that's just. mm. Yeah. No words. Also, like, I mean, obviously, if you're friends with this person, I'm already suspicious of you. But if your friend does that to their spouse in front of you, I don't even know what I would do. Right. But like, just like the just the sheer balls on this man. So not surprisingly, they broke up in 1987. She went into hiding. That's a while, though. They were married a while. Yeah. 
They were married a while, but also keep in mind, like, so she also had a child that he was good with. And like the one thing that I saw that people agreed with is the fact that he was raising her son, I believe it was a little boy, like he was his own. So like he was like joting on him and like kind of a good dad. From what I saw, I didn't dive too much into that because there's just so much. But from what I saw, like, I wonder if that made her pause. And also like she was 16 with a kid. Like financially, she probably couldn't just pick up and disappear. Right. That's true. So she eventually leaves with her son and goes into hiding and he goes to her parents and he says like tell me where she is and they refuse to and he said like if you don't tell me i will burn down your house shortly after their house gets burnt down oh my gosh that poor family right so during the trial karen said that he was violent and he was obsessed with guns so we're about to start in to the actual backpack murders from Blangelo Forest. But just keep in mind that during this time that Malat was working as a road worker. So he was on the roads around the park. So December 30th, 1989, Deborah Everest and James Gibson left from Sydney to go to a festival that was near the border of New South Wales. They had planned to meet up with some friends, but they never showed up. After not hearing from them the following week, relatives then filed a missing persons report. Police at the time did not seem too concerned. Kind of reminds me of like Texas Killing Fields vibes. Yeah. So January 20th, 1991 comes and Simone Schmidl left Sydney for Melbourne. She was 21 at the time and she was from Germany. She was supposed to meet her mother at the airport on January 24th, but she also never showed up. So on December 26th of 1991... And also just, I don't know if you're noting these dates, but so far we're right after his birthday because I believe he was born on the 27th. But so on December 26th of 1991, Anya Habshield and Gabor Dujabar, a couple, went missing while they were on a 4,000 kilometer trek, which, wow, wow. So they planned for it to take about a month. And once they got to Darwin, which was like the end of their trek, they were going to fly home from there, but they never showed up for their flight. So then in April of 1992, Caroline Clark and Joanne Walters left Sydney heading south. Now, the two of them had met while they were at another like a backpackers hostel at one point, became friends and they even shared an apartment. So after they had left, they hadn't contacted their families for a couple weeks. And then their families alerted UK police, which is where their families were from, and Australian police. They also reached out to the media to get attention. So that same month... Nugabar's parents were followed by a television crew as they looked for their son. So they, I believe they actually went to the park. And so his parents brought up the fact like, hey, there's other missing backpackers here. So finally, someone's like, this is weird. Yeah. People are going missing from here, which I think is sad that they had to be the ones to say like, perhaps a pattern is here. Yeah. There's a common trait with all these missing people. Exactly. Maybe you should look into it. When I think also too, these are all like, well, first off, like they're hiking. So they're like younger people who are hikers. So they're like, oh, they're just in the woods somewhere or they ran away or they're just off living their life because they're the type of people who go on hikes. And I'm like, that's a weird place to get to. Right. Like they could survive on a hike. They can survive camping and, you know, backpacking through places. Yeah, they'll be fine. So September of 1992, two runners discover the bodies of Clark and Walters. Walters had been stabbed in the chest 14 times and 21 times in the back. So bad that one of the stabs actually severed her spine. That has to be an incredibly forceful stab, it feels like, to be able to sever something like that. And also... To know where to stab. I mean, maybe it was on purpose or maybe it wasn't. This sounds kind of frenzied because there's so many stabs, but like, yeah, woof, awful. Yeah. 
So about 10 meters away, that's where they found Clark's body. They had been blindfolded and then Clark had been stabbed in the chest and was shot 10 times in the head. There was a fire pit that was built nearby that had cigarette butts and spent 22 caliber cartridge casings. So what you want to take away from that is he stays for a while during these killings. They seem to find evidence of him hanging out like multiple cigarette butts. And I mean, all of the casings, sure. But he hangs out, which also makes it, I don't know, just seem so much worse and creepy. Yeah. I also saw some sources where they speculate that he was using Clark for target practice. So he may have taken his time. Oh, yeah. While while they were blindfolded. Oh, that's awful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also, I mean, do you find it abnormal that we're seeing stab wounds and lots of gunshot wounds that's a lot of things for one person to do to two people it is it's time consuming and using those two methods multiple times is not common exactly so october of 1993 an outdoors person found the body of james gibson when they were collecting firewood Deborah Everest's body would be found near him and she also had a spinal wound from a knife Yeah, I think that that's an interesting pattern. And not to always do this, but we'll talk a little bit later about why that particular wound, I wonder if that's part of his signature, because I would imagine a knife wound to the back to your spine would paralyze you. Yeah, probably. So she was found in the fetal position and her lungs were punctured and her jaw was broken. She had been severely beaten. James had been stabbed eight times. A fire pit again was built nearby, including cigarette butts and the spent casings. So until this point, police were like, no, 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 there's no serial killer. And then now they're like, oh, wait. Yeah, there's probably a serial killer because there's just too many similarities between these crimes. A large task force was then formed for the investigations and they started performing a big search of the park. So in November of 1993, Schmidl's body was found, and she had the same spinal injury, a stab wound to her spine. Three days later, Havishid's and Nujabar's bodies were found. Havishid had been decapitated by a sword or machete. And I saw some sources say that her skull was never recovered. However, there is a show called Catching Malat, which is a dramatization of the murders. And in that show, they show like the way that their bodies were found was that somebody found the skull. So I was like, that's different from what I've seen. So I'm not sure which it is. Yeah, I had also read in a couple articles that they hadn't found the skull. So unless they found it a long time afterwards. Yeah, it's still awful. I can't even imagine that those poor people truly, truly terrible. And I thought that one of the interesting things about this case is I feel like often when you read victims, you hear every single thing that happens to each person. Mm -hmm. And there are sources that say these are the exact wounds. But oftentimes they talk about them in aggregate. Like this is a thing that happened to everyone. And one of the things that they noted was that for some of the people, both men and women, they would find that their top button would be buttoned on their pants, but like the rest of the buttons or the zippers were undone and that there was evidence of sexual assault against men and women. Also, we talked about it before, but the gunshot wounds to the body and the head Some were bound, some were gagged. Some of them, they actually had like their bones chipped from the sheer force of the knife going in. And we mentioned it before, but the paralyzing stab wounds. Yeah, it's terrible. Heinous. So after seeing the reports of the bodies being found, a man named Paul Onions called the Australian Federal Police. 
Paul was from Britain and he had been attacked in January of 1990, but he was able to free himself from the vehicle. So here's his account. He was hitching a ride to Canberra with a man who had a distinctive mustache. He started to feel uncomfortable when the man began asking some weird questions like, do you have any special forces training from the time that you were in the Navy? I'm assuming he said he was in the Navy. Yeah. But I was like, that's a very peculiar question, a very specific question. Very weird. Do you have anyone waiting for you? Did anyone know where he was going? And those aren't normal questions to ask someone. Yeah, they're really not. When they got close to Belangelo State Forest, the driver said that he was going to look for some cassettes to play and he pulled off the road. The attacker then pulled a gun and told Paul, this is a robbery. Paul got out of the vehicle and ran as his attacker shot at him. He was able to flag down another car and leave the scene unharmed. Paul filed a police report, but they said it was very unlikely that they would find his attacker. So that story sounds identical to Collins. Yeah, exactly. Other than, you know, a gun versus a hammer. Yeah. Okay, so after this whole ordeal, remember he was from Britain, he went immediately back home. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting too. There was a woman who picked him up and she also filed a police report because she saw him like shooting the gun. And they're just like, we aren't going to be able to find him. And police were like, okay, cool. Glad you lived. Yeah, no bigs. Like, don't worry about it. That's great for you. So on May 22nd of 1994, police searched Ivan Malat's home in connection with the attack on onions. So they also launched seven simultaneous raids on Malat family properties. And just an interesting note, Malat shared a home with his sister, Shirley, and some think that she was involved in the murder. There's also allegations that they had had a sexual relationship for decades. Oh, no. And... I'll tell you, so that Chasing Malat show I was watching, they like show a scene of them and it's uncomfortable where it's like flirty and it's like, I was like, oh, please stop. I'm a no, thank you. No, thank you. And so a lot of people wonder whether she was his accomplice. So his home was in Southwest Sydney. Police found items belonging to his victims, the backpackers, in his home, including clothing, sleeping bags, camping equipment. There was also a picture of his girlfriend on the wall wearing a shirt from one of the victims. So he had given stuff to his relatives as well. They also found things inside the walls like a rifle. So the things that had gone to his relatives when they would ask, like, oh, where did this come from? They were like, oh, Ivan gave this to us. So in Ivan's home, they also found lots of ammunition, pieces of disassembled weapons, including a 22 caliber rifle. Ballistics would later confirm that this was one of the weapons that was used. So I, I think this is a good point to note that everything I saw, I kept seeing 22 caliber rifle shells, but apparently there was more than one type of casing that was found. It's just that this type of casing was the kind that they traced back to him specifically. Yeah. Like they were able to say, like, we found the gun. You'll often see 22 caliber rifle casings were found. And we'll talk a little bit later about that because there's some interesting things that happen ballistics wise. But so they also found ropes and plastic ties that were similar to those that had been used in the crimes. So they searched Malat's mother's home. And remember, we had talked about Habashid being decapitated. They found a cavalry sword that was curved and looked with the type of weapon that could have been used to decapitate Habashid. So in 1994, Malat was arrested. Finally. Yeah. So his trial, it began in March of 1996. He was being tried for seven murders and the attack on Paul Onions. 
He had hired an attorney that he had used for the rape trial in 1984, John Marston. Malat fired Marston after he advised Malat to plead guilty. That's saying something. Yeah. Malat, of course, was like, nah, and pled not guilty. The defense tried to convince the jury that the other members of the Malat family had committed the murders and were now framing him. So it's just like this family affair. Also, that would be a brilliant way to cover up murders is to just pick a patsy. Like... I don't think that's what happened, but it would be a way of doing that if you had a murderous family. Well, and with him giving them all the items, too, he kind of set himself up really well for that. Well, also, I think that was a way for him to be able to see the trophies in everyday life. Exactly. He could relive it. Also, from what I had seen, the way that he had like their belongings and his belongings and firearms and weapons just kind of strewn about, people didn't realize that Shirley lived with him at first because it looked like he lived alone because there was like very little evidence of her existence. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that the the picture of his girlfriend that he would choose to put up on a wall would be the one of her wearing one of the victim's shirts. Exactly. Yeah, there's a comparison picture online, too, of the shirt, and it's just yeah, sad. So after the 15-week trial, Malat was convicted. He was sentenced to six years for the attack on Paul Onions and seven consecutive life sentences for the murders. The judge said it was apparent that he did not act alone. Ballistics evidence showed that there were casings from two distinct firearms, like Lindsay had just mentioned. Also, in the different ways that the people were murdered, right? Like some were stabbed 40 plus times, some were being shot multiple times. Yeah, and I really do think that there were two people there just because I think it would be difficult to do some of the things that were done if just one person, right? Like there's two people and some of them were bound, some of them were gagged. Like I don't know how you could do that to two people at once. Because unless you're having one person bind the other person, but I never heard any evidence that suggested that they had the other victim participate in the attack against the other one. Yeah, unless he rendered them unconscious. Yeah. But I feel like we would have heard about like head wounds in a different way. Well, what if he shot them once first? Yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah, that's fair. Since they, a lot of them had the wounds first. Who knows? And that's why I was saying, remember, in the beginning, at first attack, I wonder if he had someone in the bed of his truck, if he had his accomplice in the bed of the truck. Because I can't think of any reason why he wouldn't want anything in the bed of his truck. The only person who I've ever met who doesn't like things in the bed of their truck is Ben. Everybody else in the world is like, this is a truck. Things go on the bed. Well, my thought was maybe, you know how he likes to keep the trophies, right? Maybe he's like, I want all the stuff in the bag. And like, what if it fell out? Or what if yeah, it wasn't tied down? What if it's not heavy enough without like him physically grabbing it? Like a backpack could be just a couple items. I mean, I'm sure it looked a lot bigger because he was backpacking and, you know, looking for work and he was carrying everything. But like, yeah, but like, I feel like you wouldn't go to put something small in the bed of the truck, right? Like think about like your purse, for example. Right. Like you're not going to put your purse in like the bed of a truck when you're getting in because it's small versus like a big backpacking pack. Yeah. It's going to be big enough where it's awkward to get. And still having it in the cab made it easier for him to get away because he could grab it and go. Well, it was in the back. He put it behind his seat. So it actually took him a second to like open the seat. And, yeah, grab it. Yeah. But that's still quicker than it would have been in the cab. I feel like. I mean, depending on how tall he was, I guess, because some I mean. Oh, I'm five too. Everything's tight. I'm a short person. So yeah, but like other people just like easily grab things. That's true. With their super long arms. Normal sized humans. No, I'm I'm stumpy. 
I'm stumpy in all ways, but like, I don't know. To me, I really think that there was another person involved. Could be. Yeah, maybe. And I thought it was interesting that the judge was like, it's clear. Yeah, I mean, it it makes sense. And it would be hard, especially with two, you would think like a backpacker would be in fairly good shape to run away and like get out of there. And if there's two of them, it would be hard unless he shot or stabbed one first and they weren't able to run. Maybe that could have been some of the spine injuries too. I don't know. Yeah. So throughout this, he maintained his innocence and kept saying, nope, I didn't do it. So Paul Enyans was offered $140,000 as a reward payment, but he publicly declined the payment. Good on you, I guess. I mean, he came forward. It is because of his story and like all of that, that they were finally able to put some stuff together. Like he lived. He got to like say, nope, that was the man. So post-trial, remember I brought up Clive Smalls earlier. He talked about one of his accounts and he said that Ivan's mom had been asked by one of her sons about Ivan. And she told him that Ivan had confessed to the murders to her. And basically she was just like, before I die, I need to know like what happened. And this was when she used to visit him when he was behind bars and I guess just told her. So what's interesting is that even after confessing, though, his mom's like, nope, he's innocent. I also I just I don't think that he would have confessed to her. I mean, if she's like, hey, I'm going to die soon. I just need to know. I'm on your side no matter what, but I just need to know. Maybe there's another slip later coming up. So maybe I don't know. But according to Clive Small, that's what he was told. So there's another guy that was in one of the interviews. He is Ivan's nephew. His name's Alistair Shipsy. And he describes Ivan completely different than anyone else. He called him, quote, a tower of strength of the family and an inspiration. And when asked, like, well, wasn't he a murderer? He responded, not a chance. And he talks about how he was vilified. The media had vilified him and basically helped frame him. He mentions that him and Ivan became sort of like pen pals while he was behind bars and that they'd write back and forth. And Ivan consistently talked about being innocent and that it was a huge conspiracy. Ivan also blamed Clive Small for setting him up. And he even signed one of his letters with Ivan, innocent, framed by Clive Small. (laughs) So specific and petty. Right. Well, Alistair's sitting there and in the interview, he's going through his letters and he's like, look at this. Look at this. And he says that the only reason that Boris is against him is because of the affair with his wife. So that's the only reason why he would speak out against him and hates him is because of that. But otherwise, he's a great guy. Boris has been ostracized by his family because of his beliefs about Ivan. In 2005, while in the Goldburn jail, he accused Clive of suggesting one of his sisters was involved with the murders. And Clive was like, no, because I know you did them by yourself. And here's Ivan's response. Yes. So why are you saying she's involved? So Clive was like, um, I see that as an admission that he did it. And he's like, if you could only see Ivan's expression once he said that, he was kind of like in a state of shock for a second because he almost let it slip. And yeah, by saying yes. So why is she involved? That's totally like, yeah, I did it. I did it alone. But I think he's covering for someone. Yeah, I mean, I do think there was somebody else involved. And like, if I was the person who had seven life sentences, like why drag somebody else down? Right, right. Especially from some of the things that I've seen, they talked about that if there was a duo, at least a duo, that Malat was likely the dominant personality. If you're thinking BAU, Criminal Minds, baby, the person who worked with him was likely more submissive to him. So he might be like, go live your life and murder other people and other parks and other places. Because like, I think the thing that had people caught was that this was a place where people went. 
right? Like it was a part of nature where people go. And that's why people actually found the bodies. Because I feel like if it was like a random patch of woods, they may not have found them, especially if he was a road worker and worked on like large expanses of roads. So in May of 1997, Malat had a plot to escape the prison he was at. But then he was separated from his accomplice, which was George Savas. The next morning, Savas was found hanged in his cell. So then Malat was housed in a high security unit that held Australia's most dangerous criminals. So at one point, they found a blade in his cell. So then they put him into solitary. And this is where he gets real wacky. I mean, he's wacky before, but like this is where I was cringing as I was reading this. So when he was in solitary confinement, he would go on hunger strikes He would swallow sharp items if the guards didn't do what he wanted. And he would swallow things like staples, a tiny little like chain that went to the flushing mechanism in his toilet and razor blades. Razor blades, though, like just a casual razor blade swallow. This is allegedly so that his appeal would be heard, which I don't see how any of these things would make his appeal be heard. But so at one point, he cut off his pinky finger with a plastic knife and handed it to a guard so that it could be sent to their like Supreme Court and their review panel. I don't understand how, you know, like with the plastic knife, he would have had to saw through. But I break plastic knives trying to cut anything. Yeah, like I can't cut like a piece of bread with a plastic knife. So I don't know. I wonder if he sharpened it like shiv style. Yeah. He would have had to because otherwise, like, I just I'm looking around my table to see if I have like a plastic knife near me, which I don't know why I would. You want to try to saw something? Yeah. Just see what it feels like. Because I don't know. I just can't imagine that that would work. Oh, that's that's crazy. Yeah. But he must have fashioned it into some weird item. He must have done something. So in July of 2001, Malat's initial appeal against his sentence was denied. And then I'm not sad about this next part. He was diagnosed with terminal stomach and esophagus cancer. So he was then transferred to another facility for him to receive treatment. So in 2001, 2003, and 2005, they asked him for more information about other backpackers and travelers that hadn't been found because they wanted to see if he had been involved in their murders too. But new charges were never brought. And they called this like a, I think it was called like a general inquest. And I don't know if that was, that's like, I'm assuming that's a legal mechanism to get people to provide information, but I'm not quite sure how that works in Australia. So on November 8th of 2004, in a TV interview, Malat said his family had never had any part in the murders. So this really creeps me out, this next part, that in July of 2005, on his deathbed, John Marsden, who had been his attorney, remember, said that Malat confessed that he had been assisted by a woman in the murders of Waters and Clark. I wonder if it was the sister. I think it was because from what it seems like, he had some power or control over her. Right. So in September of 2005, Malat's final appeal was refused. Yeah. So in May of 2005, Boris, remember his brother, said that Malat had actually shot a taxi driver named Neville Knight in 1962. I want to say he was like 17 at the time. His rifle misfired and he ended up shooting him in the spine, causing him to be paralyzed from the waist down. Sounds familiar, right? Like what he did later. Yeah. And I wonder if this is where he got a taste for it. Right. Like that was his first one. Yeah. Yeah. Where if he saw like if he does this one type of wound, then he can do whatever he wants. Exactly. So luckily, you know, the man survived, but was paralyzed, right? So polygraph tests showed that Boris was not lying. So he was telling the truth about what he was told. Ivan fled and an innocent man was wrongly convicted and served five years for the shooting. 
His name was Alan Dillon, and he was the one that was convicted. He also took a polygraph test, and it showed that he was not the one that shot Knight. On October 27, 2019, Malat finally died of esophagus and stomach cancer. Heck yeah. Yeah. Again, fuck this guy. He's awful. Yeah. So let's talk about the MO a little bit. Why backpackers? Like, why did he choose these specific people? And what it sounds like is he chose them because they would be isolated, right? They'd probably be going into strange areas and camping and things like that. And they'd be isolated from members of their family, right? They'd only have each other if they were traveling with someone or be alone. Yeah. And with that, they wouldn't be missed right away. So it kind of reminds me of Samuel Little a little bit where he's like, these people won't be missed. So I'm going to grab them. And it gives them time to get away with it. So why the forest? Because it's isolated. The forest is dense, especially the parts of that forest. And also finding the bodies in the dense parts of that forest would be very unlikely. Also, he was a road worker in the areas near it. So he was seeing his victims in the place where he wanted to murder them. So he was like able to do it. Do you know what I mean? Like it wasn't as though it would have been abnormal for him to be in that area. Yeah. Yeah. He was like already there. So he could be like, there's a person. Let me kill him. Exactly. So there's also a monument in the park that's dedicated to his victims. It's a plaque on a large rock. And I've seen a couple pictures like people leave things there. There's like stuffed animals. and Yeah. You know, all kinds of things. And I'm pretty sure it was there before they had even had any suspects. Yeah. Yeah. They did that pretty early on. So he's still considered one of the prime suspects for some of these cases as well. One being Leanne Godall, and she went missing on December 30th of 1978, and she was 21. Robin Hickey, who went missing on April 7th, 1979, and she was 17. That one and the next one don't really fit with his birthday idea, if it was. Yeah. Well, there were some that didn't go with the birthday idea, but it was just like, I didn't like that the first two that we saw were like right after his birthday. I was like, ew, I don't. Mm -hmm. It makes me nauseous to think about it. Right, right. Amanda Robinson, she went missing on April 21st of 1979, and she was coming home from a school dance. She was only 14 years old at the time. Another one is Peter Letcher, who was 18. His body was found in another state forest in 1988. He was shot in the head and stabbed several times in the back. The bullets that were used were the same as the other murders. And also, obviously, it's very similar to the other murders because it was not only the gunshots, but the stab wounds, which, I mean, you could say was his signature. Yeah. I also wonder if they were like, he can't have done this in another park. Like, they couldn't, like, fathom it, right? But he was a road worker and he worked in various places. Yeah. And also, like, he didn't have to just kill people in parks. Like, he could have killed people other places, too. Right. Right. And there's a couple more. So in the next two victims, the next two women that I'll talk about, their remains were both found in a forest. So still follows kind of his MO. Yeah. Karen Rowland, who was 20, she was last seen in the Canberra area in February of 1971. She was last seen hitchhiking. Her remains were found in the forest and also appeared to be sexually assaulted. And then they found beer bottles at the crime scene. And then Diane Panaccio. And she was around 29, 30 years old. I saw a couple different sources differed. She was last seen in 1991 in the town of Bergendor. And her remains were found in the forest, appeared to be sexually assaulted. And same thing, beer bottles were found at the crime scene. So we're going to shift from the backpack murders like 90%. 
So in November of 2010, Malott's teenage great-nephew, Matthew Malott, convinced one of his friends, David Otterlani, to go to Belongolo Forest for his 17th birthday. And it was his friend David's birthday. Their friends Cohen Klein and Chase Day also came. So they told David that they were going to go to the forest to smoke pot. And Matthew had said that he wanted to see the plaque that had been put up for Malat's victims. Bizarre. But they were like, okay. So when they get to the forest and they're parked, both Cohen and Matthew begin chasing David around with a medieval type of axe. And Day is like, what the hell are you doing? He's like, what's going on? Why are you doing this? And they're like, just get in the fucking car. So he's scared. So he gets in the car and kind of like keeps his head down. And he says he can hear David screaming and then he hears silence. No. Yeah. So Matthew murdered David with the axe and their other friend who was there, Cohen, recorded the murder on his cell phone. Gross. And when I type in David's name, it says like a video afterwards. I'm not going to watch it, but no. From what I understand and like from what I've read, you can hear the sound of the axe hitting him. Like it's a very audible sound. Both were arrested and pled guilty. Cohen, who videotaped it, was sentenced to 32 years and Matthew was sentenced to 43 years. Not good enough. No. And Matthew bragged, that's just what Malats do. I've also seen several articles that talk about how Matthew is apparently popular in prison and that he manipulates other prisoners to do things for him and that he has this kind of like respect from other prisoners because he's a Malat. Oh. And I fucking hate it. Yeah. That's awful. Yeah. And then it's crazy to me that the family then is still backing his uncle, right? Ivan. Like, nope, he's innocent except for Boris. Yeah. Meanwhile, he's like, nope, that's what Malats do. We murder people. Mm-hmm. So now we're going to talk about a couple other murders that happened around the forest. So the first incident happened on August 29th of 2010 when another body was found with bones scattered. Investigators were calling her Angel because there was a shirt that said Angelic that was found nearby. They also found an anklet sock, an earring, and a shoelace. She was 13 to 25 at the time of her death, and her bones had been at the site less than a year from when they were found. However, some people were saying that the remains had been there at most 10 years. So very different time frames. Yeah. And all of this happened while Malat was already in prison. So this case was featured on the first episode of the TV show Wanted, which was hosted by a forensic anthropologist named Dr. Xanthi Millette. Law enforcement hoped that it would help them find more information from viewers, which we know that that does happen, right? Yeah. So Dr. Susan Hayes did a facial head reconstruction so that they can determine what she had looked like in hopes that, yeah, this might lead her to some identification. Yeah. I think this is like one of the worst ways that I've seen remains be identified. And that's because on July 14th of 2015, more than a thousand kilometers, which would be about 620 miles away in the park, but along the road, a suitcase was found with a pink dress inside and next to it were the remains of a child. Law enforcement said that the remains had been dumped from the suitcase within the preceding three months and that the suitcase was moved closer to the verge. From what I understand, I think the verge was the edge of the forest. Yeah. That's just how they described it. So they had no clue who this child was. They had no leads. They weren't getting anywhere. On October 8th of 2015, someone called Crime Stoppers to suggest that the child in the suitcase was two-year-old Condoleezza Kiara Pierce. 
It's at that point that they link this body to the body that was found in 2010 because they're like, that's bizarre. And I hate this case so much because there's so many times when people like thought they were doing the right thing and they were lied to. And so like, it'll make sense in a minute. It really hurts my heart because her family. So they're like, perhaps this is Condoleezza Kira Pierce and her mother, Carly. So Carly's mother, Colleen Povey, had reported her daughter missing in September of 2009. And that was on the 4th. But she withdrew her missing persons report on the 10th because she was, quote, assured that Carly was safe and well, but that she just didn't want contact with her family. That's awful. Yeah. And so from that being on file, that's how they kind of linked it, that it was them. Yeah. And so they took both of their medical records, both Carly and Condoleezza's, and they took blood samples and they were able to get positive DNA matches on both. Also, the last person that they had as a witness to see Condoleezza and Carly had a photo of them from November of 2008. And Condoleezza was wearing the pink dress that was in the suitcase. Oh, heart. Yeah. And so Carly and Condoleezza's family for this entire time thought that they were fine and just living someplace else. And this is like so heartbreaking for me. But Carly's mom, Colleen, passed away in 2012 from breast cancer, thinking that her daughter didn't want her in her life. And her last words were, is Carly and Candelise here yet? It's horrible. Yeah. And so she died thinking that her daughter wanted nothing to do with her. And that just like, oh, that like gets me so intensely because she would have been looking for them if she would have known they were missing. And we'll get into why she didn't know they were missing in a moment. So a little bit more on the case. Daniel James Holdem, who was 41, was in a relationship with Carly at one point. Holdem also used different aliases, including Daniel Bishop and Daniel Marshall. Carly was murdered on December 14th or December 15th of 2008. They left Canberra together and then they had an argument over board payments. They stopped at the Belanglo Forest, where he sexually assaulted Carly, then crushed her windpipe by stepping on her throat. He took a photo of her afterwards. Just makes my stomach turn. Yeah. Holdem told acquaintances all of the details. He then took Candelise, purchased duct tape, body wash, garbage bags, and dishcloths, and checked into a motel. Yeah, it's like a startling list of items to see, right? Or to hear. So Holdem admitted to his acquaintances that he suffocated Candelise on December 19th of 2008. When they searched his home, one of the things they found was a notebook of children's names with ages listed next to them, with the sexual assault terms also written next to them. And they were all very young children. So they were unable to determine whether Candelise was sexually assaulted due to the decomposition of her remains, but it's believed that that was the motive behind both crimes. So in addition to all of these terrible things, he also stole Carly's identity after her death. And that's one of the reasons why her family didn't know she was missing. So law enforcement believed that Holdem was in a relationship with a woman named Hazel Passmore and that she was posing as Carly. And she stole about $90,000 doing this. Oh my God. Yeah. And so their relationship ended when Holden got into a car accident where his vehicle flipped and killed two of Passmore's children. And he also paralyzed her so she could no longer walk. Passmore posted photos of Candelise on Facebook in 2008 for the death of the two Passmore children. He lost his license and was given a 12-month good behavior bond. And I think that might be similar to probation. I didn't see anything that talked about what happened with the accident, but woof. 
question though so she posted pictures of candelise like she was alive as the mom right from what i saw i couldn't see whether it was passmore posting as herself or whether she was posting pictures of candelise as carly so law enforcement suspected that there was also another woman that holdem used for this identity fraud scheme so in addition to stealing money they also used carly's phone so that they could convince carly's family that she was still alive at one point, they pretended to be Carly and asked Colleen for money, her mom, and then she gave it to her and they withdrew the money. I have seen differing amounts of times that her identity was used or her cards were used. I've seen hundreds to 1,200. Oh my gosh. Different transactions. These people are just the worst. That's terrible. I don't understand how you could be a part of that. Right. Right. Because, look, I understand like identity thieves, whatever, like money, money. But to lie to a family so that someone thought that somebody was okay, I don't understand the type of lie he would have had to tell for them to believe it. Right. Or like, why would you be posting pictures of a child? Right. And this was also like, this was a mom. Right. Like she had kids. And also this guy clearly had no business being around children. No, not at all. So police confirmed that Holdem's cell phone was in the Blangelo forest when Carly was murdered. Police were initially unsure whether Candelise was murdered in the same state where her body was dumped. Originally, Holdem was just charged for Carly's murder, but then Candelise's murder was added as well. Holdem confessed to both murders just a week before the trial began. Prosecutors stated that they believed that Holdem murdered Carly because he wanted to gain access to her daughter. Fuck this guy. Gives you chills, yeah. He pled guilty to both murders and was sentenced to two life sentences. Well deserved. I just don't think that's enough. nothing's enough for what he did and during the sentencing phase of his trial he also talked about having been abused and i'm like i don't care plenty of people go through abuse and trauma in their lives and they don't do this horrendous shit because not only like the way in which he killed them why he killed them and then also just like making her family believe that she was fine all these years yeah yeah no So this place just has a horrible history. And because of it, some people decided it would be a good idea to do ghost tours there. And they were called the Golbum Ghost Tours. And they were giving tours of the area where the murders happened in the forest. And the tour was called, quote, the Extreme Terror Tour. Yeah. I hate it. And here's the thing, like, I I am a fan of ghost tours. Like, I enjoy learning about the history and what happened. But there's a tasteful way of going through history and what happened versus extreme terror tour. Yeah. And you and I have also talked about, like, timing of things like this. Yeah. If there are living relatives who are still hurt by this, you do not do it. No. You wait until it's decades later. Yeah. And a spokesman for the company, Louise Edwards, said that they were being respectful and did not intend to offend anyone. I just think just even the name itself is a little, I guess, offensive. Extreme terror. Yeah, it's in poor taste. Yeah. So all the articles we were able to find were from 2015, though. So I don't believe that the tour still happened, but it does look like still a lot of people visit the forest. People are, you know, sometimes taking that sign. There's graffiti all over the sign. Ew. People just go to, like, see what they can find in the creepy forest and just sad. We'll post a picture of the sign, too, when you can see just how messed up it is from people visiting. Woof. This place is one of the worst forests I've heard of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we've talked about spooky forests, but this one truly does have a really terrible legacy of death. 
Yeah. 10 out of 10 would not go to Blankalow Forest. No. Well, I honestly, just to lighten it up a little bit, I have no desire to go to Australia at all. I am just scared of the things that I have seen as far as spiders. The spiders are unnecessary. And just like, I feel like everything there is, like you say, Arizona is the Australia of the U.S. Yeah. I don't want it worse. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to go to the Australia of the world. No. So, like, in my brain, I had told myself that kangaroos were sweet. Looked like Kanga and Roo from Winnie the Pooh. Oh, no. And then I saw a video of a kangaroo looking like, oh, my God. Did you ever play the video game Tekken? Mm-hmm. Okay, is it Jax who has a special character of a kangaroo where he boxes? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, I don't remember their names. It's been a million years. Yeah. But do you know what I'm talking about? That that boxing kangaroo? That's what kangaroos actually fucking look like. They're like, for lack of a better word, I'm just going to say swole. They're ready to fight. They look like they've been at the gym too much. I watched some video of one like banging on someone's door. And I was like, I am afraid of that. I am afraid of that, like, just wholly bizarre type of animal that looks, honestly, it's a bipedal animal, so it freaks me out already. But just another weird thing that I'm afraid of is kangaroos. (laughs) It's funny that you say that because someone sent me this video. I'll send it to you real quick. I'm wondering if we only see certain things about Australia and that it isn't as scary. I'm hoping that's what it is. You know how like everyone thinks Texas is only cowboys and Arizona only has cactus everywhere. No, people don't think Texas is just cowboys. (laughs) They think it's Texas is cowboys and misogynist. Well, get it right. Part of it's true. So I'm hoping that we just have the wrong view. And maybe I mean, I've seen some beautiful pictures of it, but I can't get over the bugs. Their possums are more whimsical looking than ours. I mean, I like possums any way you have them. They're very cute, but they're definitely more whimsical looking. Did you see the video real quick? Did it scare you? Oh, God. Okay, so Amanda's, oh my God, he's fucking jacked. No, I absolutely, it's grabbing him. I don't like it. Is that a man holding a matzo? This buff kangaroo looks like he's on steroids. No, I don't like it. I don't fucking like kangaroos. I like wallabies. I think that they're from there, aren't they? Well, also, my favorite animal is from Australia, and that's a wombat. 10 out of 10 little wombat. But Amanda, do you know what else I really love? Hmm. I really love spooky stories. And our episode next week is going to be our one year anniversary episode, which is blowing my mind. I can't believe it. It went by so fast. Yeah. It went by so fast. A wonderful fast year of creeping with you and everyone who's listening. So we're doing a special episode for our one year anniversary, anniversary birthday, where we have listener stories and we would love if you would submit a spooky, scary story. But today is the very last day to do it. So you have until midnight, let's say West Coast time, whatever. Send it to us today. By the time you go to bed today, send it to us. It can be anything spooky, anything creepy, a weird thing that happened to you where you're still shaken up by it. We want it. If you're creeped out, we want to be creeped out with you. We're going to compile these in a fun episode. Now, you can submit two ways. One, you can write it all down and shoot us an email. Or you can record your own story and you can be on the show. We're excited about both options, but we're super excited about having folks be on the show. So just a note, just a note. So maybe that maybe that changes what you want to do. But so either way, whether you record it and send it to us or you write it down and send it to us, please do the following. Send it to us today, obviously. Also, you're going to email truecreepspod at gmail.com and the subject line puts listener stories. And then in the body of your email, include whether you'd like to be anonymous or your name to be used and your pronouns. 
Yeah. We can't wait to read them or hear them. Yeah. I'm excited. Yes. And some of the ones that we already received were super creepy and I can't wait to share them. Agreed. I know for at least a few of them, I literally gasped as I read them or heard them. I was like, oh, God. Oh, God. Yeah. So normally we don't tell you what the next week's episode is going to be. It's a surprise. But since we want you to send this guy toot sweet, we wanted to throw it in again. Well, we got a little silly at the end because that's what we had to do sometimes because this was a really heavy one. We have to shake some of that off. Yeah. 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 And with that, have a good weekend. Thanks for creeping with us. Thanks for listening. For more information on our sources, please visit our website, truecreeps.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at truecreepspod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash truecreepspod, and on Twitter at truecreeps. We'd love for you to keep creeping with us. So if you like this episode, please subscribe, rate, review, and share the show with your fellow creeps. 